All right. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to Psalms chapter 51 this morning. Psalm 51. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. And if you need a Bible to take home with you, that is our gift to you. Feel free to take that today. Psalm 51, as we look at a life of wisdom and worship, and we, uh, we look at how it recognizes sin, it repents of sin, and it rejoices in salvation. And so as we get into this psalm today, we see that it is wisdom literature, so we're going to get some wisdom from it, but it's also a, uh, a song, a worship song, a song of repentance. And so there is wisdom and worship both taking place as we study God's Word today. And it is a psalm that uh, is one of the most famous of all the psalms. And it's one of my personal favorites, and I, I know for some of you it might be familiar. And it starts off this way, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that gives a little bit of a historical context of this psalm of repentance that we're about to see. And so what we're going to do is we're also going to read through this in its entirety, and then we will kind of walk through uh, the storyline in 2 Samuel. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope I've given you enough time. Let me read God's Word, and let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I, or I would have given it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we break open your word today, we would ask that by the power of your spirit that indwells us, that you would speak to the inner recesses of our heart, that you would change us from the inside out and that you would plant your word deep within us so that we might not sin against you. Father, that you would change us, that you would show your unending mercy and your steadfast love, that you would pour out your grace upon those who have fallen, and God, that we would know that you are forgiving, loving Father. 
God, as we get into your word, we do ask that you would be in complete control of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right, David here is broken. You can tell by the way he writes. He is broken, he is remorseful, he is repentant. And so how did this all come about? It might be a, a story that you're familiar with, but I still want to go there in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And this is how the story unfolds. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from his roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Wow, the sin that overcame the servant of the Lord. All throughout 2 Samuel, you hear, you hear God refer to David as this is my servant, my servant David the one that God has chosen to be king, the one who has a heart after God, the one who writes the majority of the Psalms that we're covering. This is a man who worships and loves the Lord. And yet sin overcame him one afternoon. Sin overcomes saints. And sin overcame David in a time of complacency. You see it right there in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. But where was David? He was complacent. He had kicked back. He decided that he didn't need to go this time, and so he was not where he was supposed to be. You ever notice how sin overcomes you when you're not where you're supposed to be? Sin overcame David in a time of comfort. Chapter, verse 2 there, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He's kicked back. Where are his fellow men they're out in battle, and he is sitting on the couch. You ever notice that in times of comfort, when we let our guards down, when we're self-reliant, when we're self-seeking, we're self-absorbed, and we're self-sufficient, that sin comes knocking on our door? Complacent and comfortable, David looks out, and he sees, and he is captivated. Sin overtakes the servants of the Lord when they're captivated by things that they shouldn't be looking at. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from a roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. He allowed his gaze to linger. He allowed himself to be captivated by this young woman's beauty. He didn't turn away. He didn't flee he was complacent, he was comfortable, and he was captivated by her. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, in our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns 
and is in flames. And in this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. As David was captivated by her, he didn't hate God, he simply forgot. He forgot. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will in the deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there is one command, flee. David did not flee, but he lingered. You ever notice that if you linger a little bit longer, all you're doing is allowing the flesh to take control of your mind, your heart, and your will. That's why Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, love, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So sin overtook David when he was complacent, when he was comfortable, when he was captivated, and when it was convenient. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. A time of convenience. You know, Uriah, he's not here right now. You know where Uriah is? He is way off fighting a battle. You ever notice how sin overtakes you when it's convenient? And let me tell you, sin is always convenient. Isn't it? There's always a way to work around to say, you know what, that, that kind of actually fits my schedule right now. I, I, think I, can, I think I can do that. It was convenient. And what happened is sin caused David to overlook others and to elevate himself. You know, that's what sin does. Sin causes you to overlook others and elevate yourself. Because who is Uriah? Uriah is not just some obscure person in town. No, he's actually one of the mighty men of of David. He's a mighty warrior. He's one of the top 30 warriors in all of Israel. He has helped David all this time. They have fought side by side. He He is a brother in arms with him. He is somebody that he knows. You know what? I'm gonna overlook the fact that that's my friend because my flesh right now is telling me this is what I want. There are times when we are overtaken by sin because we will overlook others, even those that we know and love and care for because our flesh is telling us that we need this. That's exactly what David does. He overlooks others and elevates himself. So she comes to him and she says, hey, I'm pregnant. All right, plan A. Let's bring Uriah back. His wife's beautiful, you know. We'll just... We'll let this play out. No, Uriah, he's such a good guy. I'm not going home to sleep in a comfortable bed with my wife when my fellow soldiers are out there in battle. All right, plan B, let's get him drunk. And then we'll just see what happens. No, falls asleep on the front porch. Okay, plan C, here's a note. Take it back, give it to Joab. The note is your death sentence that you have no idea about. Put Uriah at the very front of the battle where it's the most fierce. And when he's out there, draw everyone back and leave them alone. 
and allow him to be struck down. You know why? Because I have elevated myself and I have, I have overlooked others so much so that he's now an obstacle in covering up my sin. But having sorrow for sin due to the consequences is not repentance. It's just simply regret. I think David regrets what has happened and now if I can just cover it up, it'll be fine. That's not the case. Even in Exodus chapter nine, as the plagues are coming against Egypt, Pharaoh says this in verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is right and I and my people are wrong. But, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. Here's what we see a lot of times when we are remorseful and we regret sin because of consequences is that as soon as the storm is over, as soon as we feel like we've gotten away with it, we go right back, right back to where we were. So if we are complacent in our affections toward Christ, if we are comfortable and let our spiritual guard down, if we are captivated by the things we know that we should run from, if we are making sin convenient to our schedule, we should not be surprised when consequences come. If we are complacent, if we are comfortable, if we are captivated by things that we should flee from, if we are making sin convenient to our schedules, we should not be surprised when the consequences come. So the end of that chapter, 2 Samuel 11, 26 and 27, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But, but, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, you think you got away with it. You think it's okay. You think that you were able to cover your tracks. You think that now everybody thinks that this is all, all good because you were able to work it out. But, the Lord knows what you did. And if you were the Lord's, he will not let you get away. If you're the Lord's, he will not let you get away. Because covering up our sin is not the same as repenting of sin. As Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We can expect our faithful father to come after us because he knows. It reminds me of Galatians 6. As we, as we get to this point in the story, a year probably goes by. The son's born, David thinks he's got away with it, everything's fine, and then Nathan's gonna show up with a story. Hey, I got a story for you. And he begins to restore David to a point of repentance. Galatians says this, Galatians 6, 1 through 8. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I've read this, I've thought, ha, caught you. Anybody ever think of it that way? Or is that just me? Just, just the sadistic person that I am. Ha, you got caught. 
Now let me restore you. No, uh, the word here is overtaken. If anyone's overtaken by sin, so if anyone is overtaken by any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse six, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Do not be mocked. God knows. If you're sowing to the flesh, you will reap corruption. David, in a moment was overtaken by sin and he sowed into the flesh and though it's been a year, he's not getting away with it. God is gonna use Nathan, that the one who is spiritual, to restore him in gentleness. I love this quote that I found by Martin Ralph Dehan. Some people go looking for sin and go out of their way to find it. But this is not the case in our scripture. This brother was overtaken, implying that he was trying to get away from it, trying to avoid it, but because of weakness, failure of prayer, and failure to look to the Lord for victory, he was overtaken. It was not deliberate sinning, but being overcome in a moment of weakness. The first verse in Galatians 6 is a solemn warning against legality and sitting in judgment upon the weak, stumbling believers. It is a plea for compassion, forbearance, and helpfulness to those who fall into sin. The sinner seeks sin, the believer flees from it. But even though he flees, he may still be overtaken in a fault. Towards such, we should be patient, kind, and helpful. Realizing the weaker brother, the more he needs our sympathy and aid. Instead of condemning and avoiding him, we are told to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. This is the call of the church because every single one of us as a servant of God, as someone who has been chosen by God, who's been redeemed by God, have the tendency to even though we're fleeing in a moment of weakness because we're not in prayer, because we're not looking to the Lord for victory, because we've become so fixated on the flesh, we have the tendency to be overtaken by it because sin is fast and it is faster than we are. And it is there before you know it. And so we, as the church, are to look at the one who has been overtaken by whatever transgression it is and not to say, ha, I caught you. But to say, ah, oh, let's restore you. Let's get you to remember the Lord. Remember what he has done for you on the cross, that he, when you were yet a sinner, died for you because you have nothing to bring to the table except for to throw yourself before him in mercy. You see, our job is a job of restoration in the church. But I'll be honest with you, we have a tendency, we have a tendency to shove things under the, under the rug. When we clean a house, we tend to sweep, sweep dirt underneath the rug, right? 
Well, let's just pretend that's not there. We tend to look the other way when we know a brother and sister in Christ is being overtaken by sin. We, we say things like, well, that's just none of my business if they want to do that. We tell ourselves that they'll, they'll be okay. Everyone else is doing it. Or we have the other reaction of saying, how dare they? I can't believe they would do that. I'm, I don't even know if I can talk to them right now. I'm so disgusted by them. We kick them while they're down. We slander them to others, even if it's in a prayer request. We judge them based on our goodness because they're not meeting the standard that we think they should meet. But God has called us in a spirit of gentleness to come alongside the one who is overtaken. And so 2 Samuel 12 is exactly what happens. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had, a, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest whom he had, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I love how Nathan comes to him in gentleness. He doesn't come to him and go, ha, caught you. He says, hey, I got a little story for you. Uh, listen to this story. It reveals the sin that's there. And David knows this is wrong. This man deserves punishment. This man deserves to die. This man deserves to pay fourfold. The thing about unrepentant sinners is that we're apt to judge others' sins while we're able to cover up our own. Unrepentant sinners have a knack of being able to judge others while justifying and hiding our own. Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added much, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, this is beautiful, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. The beautiful part about this is he recognizes his sin, he repents of his sin, and he is forgiven. 
God has put away your sin. The thing is, we can always be forgiven of sin when we repent, always. But we can't always undo the consequences of that sin. We can always be forgiven, but we can't always undo the consequences. So as we get to chapter 51 here, that was the backstory, and now I just wanna walk through this prayer with you because if we are those who are overcome by sin, how do we respond in a repentant prayer? When we sin, and when sin overcomes you, recognize sin for what it is. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You notice how he begins this prayer? He begins by just throwing himself before the Lord. These are your attributes. You're merciful. You're loving. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I've transgressed. I've stepped over the line. I'm full of iniquity. I've, I've done what is wrong, and I have nothing to bring to this conversation, so I'm just throwing myself before you. Repentance begins where blame shifting, bargaining, and rationalization end. Listen, if, if your prayer, and I've done this, and I know many of us have done this, if your prayer begins with, with blame shifting, God, you know I wouldn't have done that, but if your prayer begins with bargaining, God, if you get me out of this, I promise you. Anybody ever done that? If it, if it goes to rationalization, God, you know what situation that was in. I, and you know that was kind of just, that's not what David does here. Repentance doesn't rationalize sin. Repentance doesn't shift blame. Repentance doesn't bargain. Repentance just throws itself before the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Mercy is the idea of compassion and forgiveness to one with whom you have the power to crush or to harm. So David's prayer, and I want you to get this, reveals to us the infinitely valuable truth that God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy which grants us an unfathomable forgiveness has nothing to do with David and has everything to do with the character of the Lord. Has, you, you bring nothing to the table in repentance except for your sin, and yet he has an unwavering love and forgiveness and mercy that he is willing to pour out on you. That's, that's the Lord that we serve. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, I, I don't know about you, but it sounded to me like he sinned against a bunch of people. You know, like, let's just get the list out. Okay, well, you got, you got Bathsheba, you got Uriah, you've got the whole, the whole city of Israel. I mean, you're the king, you're the one that's supposed to be leading by example. You know the law. You, you've transgressed, you've done all of this uh, against you and you only because when we see sin for what it really is, we realize what a grievous offense it is to a holy God. And so before anything else, I have sinned against a holy God. I have forgotten you and I have looked at my flesh instead. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he's saying here is I have been a sinner since the very moment I was conceived. And the flesh that I was born in has always sought a way out and it found a way out. I was overcome by sin and I can't even stand it because I know my offense that is against you. I'm a sinner. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David here says, listen, I know my transgressions. I know my inward sin. I know that the only remedy is that you would do a work in my heart, that you would change me. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What we see is that David, while he was up on the roof, while he was complacent and comfortable and captivated by her beauty and he was looking for, for an opportunity to act on this, it's not because of the situation that he was in, it's because of the sin that was within him that caused him to sin. And he knows that what's in him is the tendency to murder. What did he do? He had his friend killed. In him is a tendency for sexual morality and adultery. What did he do? He slept with another man's wife. In his heart is a tendency for theft and false witness. What did he do? He stole someone's wife. And then he lived a lie for over a year thinking he got away with it. We need God to change us from our inside out. And repentance is a plea for him to do that. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. I love this picture of hyssop. Hyssop is a shrub that the priest used to sprinkle blood or water on people needing ceremonial cleansing, but it also shows up in the Exodus, in the Passover, Exodus 12, 22, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Listen, when the blood is applied to your life, when it is applied, there will be a Passover of your sins. And so David is pleading with him, listen, there is only one way for me to be forgiven and it is by the cleansing blood that you would pass over the sins that I have committed. I am, I am wrecked because of this sin. Wash me clean. We have a far better cleansing than a hyssop branch that has been dipped in blood and wiped on our doorpost. We have been washed by the blood of the lamb. The lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. When we recognize sin for what it really is, we fall on our knees and we say, wash me in your blood. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of this in three through six, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're overcome by sin, if it overtakes you, recognize sin for what it really is. And that your only hope of being clean is through the blood of the Lamb. Number two, when sin overcomes you, repent of sin from a humble position. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create. Create in me. This, this is a term that is going all the, way, all the way back to Genesis, to create out of nothing. David here, for him to be right with God, he recognizes that I need to be a new creation. That if I have been in sin since birth, since, since I was conceived, if I am a sinful person in the flesh, the only hope I have is that you would create newness in me. That I would be a new creation. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, repent from a humble position, be made new, be created by him as a new creation, that he is putting away your transgressions, he is reconciling you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. This is a beautiful part of what takes place in regeneration of a, of a heart, of a spirit, that he would put his word in our hearts. This is new covenant theology, that we would be made new. This is the prayer of David. It's not a prayer simply for forgiveness. It's a prayer that's asking for him to be a new creation. So a prayer of genuine repentance seeks for more than forgiveness. It seeks for renewal, reconciliation, and restoration. I, I, want, you to, I want you to get this because we so often say I repented and all we did was ask for forgiveness. All we did was say, I'm sorry because I, I, I really regret that this happened, that this is the situation that I'm in. That's not necessarily repentance. Repentance is longing for renewal, longing for reconciliation and longing for restoration in Christ. In Christ, we are cleaned. We are washed clean. In Christ, we are reconnected. We are connected back into a right relationship with the Father. In Christ, we are made complete. We are made whole. We are new creations that one day when we reach glory, we will understand fully what he has done to make us new. Repentance is asking for that renewal, seeking it, throwing ourselves before the Lord. However, failing to repent leads to the worst consequence of all, the hardening of the heart. If we pretend like we got away with it, if we simply just say, I'm sorry, there's a tendency to repeat it over 
and over and over. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. As we go on not repenting, we are simply allowing our hearts to become more and more calloused to the sin in our life rather than softening our hearts to the change that God wants to bring into our life. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Repentance is humbly softening your total inner being. That's the heart. Your mind, your emotions, and your will to God. It's softening. It's softening to the change God wants to bring to your life that turns you towards him. It's not simply a prayer asking for forgiveness for the sins that you have committed. It's more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more than saying, I'm remorseful. It's saying, I need you to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'm throwing myself before you. So when sin overcomes you, number three, rejoice in God's unwavering mercy and grace. Rejoice in his unwavering mercy and grace. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Can I just stop right there? And I'll start reading again. Do you see the response of repentance? The response of repentance is I will use my story of redemption for others to hear about the good news of the gospel so that they too will confess their sin and turn to the Lord. A lot of times we hide our, our testimonies in shame of our past, but God wants to use that so that it will bring others to salvation, that we have a testimony to give so that people can be brought in. That's what repentance does. When I, when I truly understand God's mercy and grace, let me tell you what he's done for me. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What happens after repentance? Worship happens after repentance. We come in here on a Sunday morning, we sing songs. You know why we sing songs? Because we are rejoicing in the fact that there is a God who forgives us, who renews us, who restores us, who reconnects us to the Father. We can't help but sing. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. David had access to every single animal in the kingdom, and he could have slaughtered them all as a worship to God, but that's not what he wanted. God didn't want that. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What can you bring to the altar of worship today. You know what he wants? A broken and contrite heart for the sin that's, that you've allowed to overcome your life. 
What does God want? He wants you to be humble and honest. He doesn't want you to play a religious game. He doesn't want you to act like you got it all together. What does he want? He wants you to lay yourself at his altar and throw yourself before him, creating me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. My sins are ever before me. I know exactly what they are, and I am a sinner since the very day I was born, and I cannot get away from it, so I need you to create in me something new. That's the sacrifice that he longs for. And that true repentance will, rejo- will result in a rejoicing. The confession of sin leads to inner joy, but the concealment of sin leads to inner misery. Is it true that some of us are here today and we're just miserable on the inside? Because we know. We know that we're living a lie. Maybe like David, we've covered it up. We've got away with it. No one knows. God knows. Is it eating at you? Is it robbing you of joy? David doesn't just ask to restore his salvation. He asks to have the joy of salvation restored. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Concealed sin eats away at inner peace. Concealed sin robs us of inner contentment. Concealed sin leaves us sick, spiritually sick. And I love how James says this. James 5, 13 through 16 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. What would God want you to bring to the altar today? A broken and contrite heart that confesses the sins that have overcome you. And not that the church would be judgmental, but the church would be understanding. The church would be one that helps in the ministry of reconciliation just as God used Nathan in David's life. Let me ask you as you close your eyes and bow your head, is there hidden sin in your life this morning? Are you carrying a guilt that is just eating at you, eating at your inner peace? Is the knowledge of your sin causing you to lose the joy of your salvation? has accepted sin in your life caused you to have a calloused and hard heart. Let me plead with you to bring your broken and contrite heart before the Lord today, to throw yourself before his unending mercy and his grace and his love and his forgiveness. Gracious Father, we come to you as broken vessels who need to flee from sin. Father, I ask that if we are overtaken, Lord, that you would restore us back, that you would renew our spirits, 
Father, that we would be a church that walks alongside one another, that helps carry one another's burdens and restores one another back into a right relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would be a church that doesn't sow to the flesh, but sows to the spirit, that we would hide your word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that we have been washed clean and that we can rejoice and that our mouths will be opened with praise at the thought. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?